Stopping Scotland Scammers podcast is a Broad Stance media production brought to you by the Royal Bank of Scotland. I'm Jackie Brambles and this is episode two. If you've seen Stopping Scotland Scammers on television and are thinking this might just be the same thing all over again, minus the pictures, well, stick around because the podcast isn't a repeat of the TV programme, but it is inspired by it, taking a look at things through a slightly different lens. For example, the recent cyber attacks on the NHS that went global, well, we'll be looking at ransomware a bit closer to home. We actually thought we were going to lose our whole business and it's been very, very tough getting back on our feet. Our expert on online deception talks online auction sites and reveals the five key personality traits that could make you more likely to be victimised. So, for instance, things like similarity or um, attitude towards risk or self-control or um, sensation-seeking. Premeditation is so consideration of future consequences. And in this week's Wander Off on a Tangent, our curiosity leads us from heroic postman protecting the elderly under Arbroath skies to a leafy London park dedicated to the extraordinary self-sacrifice of everyday heroes. What it means to be a hero now uh, really quite different to what it meant 100 years ago. On this week's podcast, there's definitely an undercurrent of heroism. The accidental, the unlikely, and the frankly unsung. So let's begin with the self-described accidental hero, Marcus Hitchens, who recently commandeered every newspaper headline when he stopped cyber attacks on the NHS and other large organisations in 60 countries around the world. So it would appear that if you're under attack from ransomware, which is a malicious virus that basically renders your computer useless, leaving no trace except a note from the bad guys saying, pay up or you'll never see your data again, what you need if you are under attack is a 22-year-old self-taught malware genius who works for an American cybersecurity company from the comfort of his bedroom in his mum and dad's house. That's if he's not too busy surfing and eating pizza. However, this is what a Scottish business got when they were under attack. When, when we initially reported this to the police, there was two bobbies in high-vis vest turned up at the salon. Uh, and I don't think, no disrespect to the police, I don't think they knew anything about computers. Ken Main is the owner of Ellen Conlon Hair Salon in Glasgow's West End. In last year's series of Stopping Scotland Scammers, we visited Ken and his staff at the salon to hear about the day his business was held to ransom by hackers. It was initially discovered by his manager, Leslie, when she opened up for the day, turned on the salon computer, and this happened. I panicked. When I came in on that Monday morning, I restarted the system... Um, you know, rebooted it, tried a few things and, and nothing was happening. When we identified the, the ransom note, I had to phone Ken at that point because there was, there was no information. Could you believe what you were having to tell him? Well, no, because I had to relay it. You know, I had to say that there's, there's nothing, we have nothing. The, the computer is blank. How did you feel when, she, when, you, when all this became apparent? I was apparent? I didn't know what to do. I think, why me? What's happened? It's like... Like somebody breaking into your house and, and leaving a post-it note in the door and saying, we've got all your money, if you want it back, pay more money, you know? Ken ended up paying the ransom, but although his files were returned, 90% of them were corrupted and useless. When I caught up with Ken again this week, 
he was able to quantify the long-term damage that was done to the salon by the ransomware attack 18 months ago. Uh, overall, I, I estimate we, we lost at least £20,000 over the, over the period. And the, the, the most annoying thing was I couldn't get access, I couldn't really run the business because I couldn't get access to marketing information, uh, email addresses, so and figures, more importantly. Most businesses will compare week on week, month on month, year on year figures. I had nothing like that. It's only the last couple of months I've been able to compare with what we've done the last year and and look at the business for the future and estimate and growth and all these kind of things. So the, the, the actual running of the business has been very, very difficult because we actually thought we were going to lose our whole business and it's been very, very tough getting back on our feet. Since that incident, what steps have you sort of taken to make sure that, that you are not a, a victim of ransomware again? Well, our IT, external IT guys have, have tightened everything up. We get uh, without at least two or three backups a day. I do a backup myself on a, an, an external USB uh, which I carry about with me because there's no way I'm going back through that nonsense and uh, that grief. Ken Main from Ellen Conlon Hare in Glasgow, and you can check out advice and information to help protect against ransomware and other scams at the Royal Bank of Scotland's online security centre, which you can access at personal.rbs.co.uk. The most prolific online scam begins with people looking for a bargain on auction sites, and then it goes like this. You spot a bargain way below market value, usually a big ticket item like a boat or a camper van, and then you're pressured to seal the deal quickly off the auction site to secure the bargain price. The money sent to the seller by bank transfer, and the item never arrives. It probably never existed. And it's exactly what happened to Jeanette and Paul shopping for their dream camper van. And we saw it, and we saw it, and we saw it. You didn't know. And you just get this feeling in the pit of your stomach that this isn't right. Who, who was the first person to say, I think? Me. What did you, what did you say? I just, um, I never said anything to Paul. I just uh, Googled her email address, or the email address that we had. And the first thing that came up was um, eBay Volkswagen scam. That's Jeanette and Paul, incredulous that they were duped out of £7,000. Because they don't think of themselves as foolish people, and yet they've been tricked. I can't tell you how many other victims of fraud that I've interviewed feel exactly the same way. Well, in fact, I can tell you, all of them, every single person I've encountered who was the victim of a scam has concluded that they must be stupid, or an idiot, or a fool. But they are wrong, and it's been scientifically proven that they are wrong. Over to our expert on the psychology of internet fraud, Dr. David Moditz, a specialist in online deception and the psychology of persuasion as a research associate in the computer lab at Cambridge University. His research project investigated whether intelligence has any bearing on falling for a scam. If you if you get an, an ad for you know or an eBay auction, um, you know for a, for a camper van or a bite now price that's very low, I mean it's reasonable to assume that something's not too good about this. 
right? Yeah. So, so, so then we get into this idea of, you know, what makes people fall for fraud. And if you talk to a, to a person on the street, they will say, well, they're essentially stupid, right? This is about stupidity. I mean, how stupid can you get? You're buying this thing and, you know, it's obviously, you know, it's too cheap. So it, it should be a, a scam, right? Right. So the problem is that when we actually do research, it turns out that intelligence plays no part, you know, in, in falling for fraud. You know, very intelligent people fall for fraud and, you know, not all that intelligent. doesn't really matter. I mean, even if you do it in practical, if you discuss this in practical terms, if it was true that, you know, intelligent people would never have fallen for fraud, that, then it means that, you know, highly educated people or, you know, or older people who are wise would never fall for fraud. And this is clearly not the case. Right. Right. So, so it's not about intelligence. And that's the kind, that's the, the interesting thing to me, because falling for fraud clearly is not rational. It's, you know, it's, it, it is not a wise decision to fall for fraud. So it seems that reasonable people um, act irrationally when it comes to fraud sometimes. So it's people who are, you know, average intelligence or whatever their intelligence is, that doesn't matter. So that's what, I, you know, that's essentially my research. I'm looking at, you know, what makes you act irrationally just in this case. Okay, so it's not about being stupid, as I've heard so many victims describe themselves. In fact, it's got nothing to do with our IQ at all. So what is it then that makes us vulnerable to scammers? Turns out... It's very particular personality traits. We've developed several scales that measure susceptibility to persuasion. So, you know, how likely you are to comply with scammers. Um, so, for instance, things like similarity or um, attitude towards risk or self-control or um, sensation seeking. So if I give you a few examples, for instance, if you're bad at self-control, then, you know, you might go for for something that you perceive might be a good deal and not really check it all that well. Right. Because, I mean, you don't really, you know, you're just seeing the end goal. Um, again, premeditation is so consideration of future consequences. So if you're not good at thinking, you know, what, you know, a scam might lead to, you're more likely to fall for it. Um, so you just get this email and somebody is offering you insider information about this stock. Oh, cool, I'm going to be rich. So let's not think why somebody would send me, you know, an email out of the blue saying that, you know, you can be part of this inner circle, etc. So that's the ability to premeditate. Attitudes towards risk. So in essence, if I'm lackadaisical towards, you know, risky choices, if I'm kind of like, okay, well, let's see, you know, what happens then I'm more likely to go for risky choices. Hmm, risky choices, eh? Well, that just sounds like the kind of traits that most of us have to some degree or another. I mean, I'm sitting here with a leftover Easter egg in my peripheral vision, and my self-control is currently being severely challenged. My premeditation or ability to think through the fattening consequences has been crushed, I don't seem to care that my kids might find out I broke into their stash so my attitude to risk is non-existent and the sensation-seeking part of my soul is leading the charge towards that lovely box of chocolatey bliss. Mm. Mm -mm -mm.
I know, all this talk of online deception, it's enough to make you take the garden shears to your broadband wires. But unfortunately, not being online doesn't offer total protection from being defrauded. In fact, good old-fashioned snail mail scams rake in an astonishing £3.5 billion every year in the UK. Elderly people are particularly vulnerable, and it's something that the postmen who deliver to them are keenly aware of. In the Arbroath sorting office that I visited, Adult Protection Officer Mark is training the posties what to look out for. I have brought um, a bag of typical scam mail. Generally, you can tell when it says something like official or urgent that should raise warning signals because it's not official, it's not urgent. I mean, you see something like this. I'm truly concerned about you. I do not understand why the cheque I sent you has not been deposited. Please respond. What? It's one of the red flags for these guys on the front line. Volume of mail suddenly increasing in an unusual way. Yes, that would be one sign. So we've had a case of a lady who was in sheltered housing who was 93 and the scam that she'd been conned with was buying a product and if you buy the product your name will get entered and you could win a big prize and the product that she was um, buying was anti-wrinkle cream that was the scam and it was hopeless there was tons of the stuff and also tons of scam mail as well all of the postal workers i met took their responsibility to look out for the elderly and vulnerable on their rounds very very seriously i spoke to a lovely postie called ian who clearly takes his duty of care to heart. I've been doing my round now for over 10 years, and I feel that people are like family. And I do what, you know, I do what I can to protect them. Posties like Ian are on the front line of communities, keeping an eye on the people that they see every day, spotting when something seems not quite right when there's a gathering storm of this nonsensical junk mail designed to confuse and deceive, when the elderly person receiving it seems to believe what they're reading about lottery wins and inherited millions if they'll just send off a cheque. So, hats off to posties everywhere, because sometimes just noticing the smallest of changes and taking the time to make sure everything's OK is in itself a heroic act. Now, as we're all prone to do when something piques our interest and we ponder a while, I went off on a bit of a tangent thinking about unlikely heroes like the posties of our broth, and it led me into a leafy park in the City of London called Postman's Park. Not named after heroic postman, as I'd hoped, but actually just for being a nice place to scoff a sandwich on your lunch break for the many postal workers who work next door at the old General Post Office building. But I did find heroes. 54 Victorian memorial tablets on display, commemorating 62 men, women and children, each of them having sacrificed their own life whilst attempting to save another. That self-sacrifice was the prerequisite for making it onto the Watts Memorial, because its founder, George Watts, wanted to acknowledge unsung, everyday heroes. Dr John Price has written a book about the heroes of Postman's Park, He's a lecturer in modern British history at Goldsmiths University of London, and we talked about how the use and definition of the word hero has evolved over the past century. 
as you say, your reference to the cyber, you know, the person who sort of plugged the gap in the cyber attack thing. Um, yes, you know, uh, a very public spirited um, action, you know, exactly what was needed at the time, someone stepping up, someone uh, doing what needed to be done to, to prevent a disaster, if you like, or, or information um, you know, possibly leading to loss of life. But did they put themselves in danger? Did they expose themselves to danger? I don't know, but my feeling would be not. So the word hero just gets used so much now as mm. a sort of a, a shorthand for people that we admire or people that we think did a good thing. I guess it's just a sign of the times that our heroes today don't need a sword and shield, but a laptop and a decent broadband connection to save the world from their bedrooms. Because today's villains aren't lurking on street corners so much anymore, but on the internet where we bank and shop and socialise. But let's finish this episode with an old-fashioned tale of heroics and self-sacrifice from the turn of the last century. Here's Dr Price again with a story from one of those tablets on the Watts Memorial in Postman's Park. Mary Rogers is a very interesting case. She's a stewardess on the steamship Stella, which uh, Easter, uh, Easter weekend 1899 is sailing between Southampton uh, and the Channel Islands and crashes into the caskets, rocks just off uh, the Channel Islands and the, the boat sinks. So lost for about 80 people, I think. Um, wow. And Mary Rogers is a stewardess and uh, she stays at her post on the boat um, to help uh, female passengers get into lifeboats and the story has it again we've only got eyewitness reports but the story has it that she has a life jacket on and she's about to get into a, a lifeboat to be rescued when a female passenger appears who doesn't have a life jacket so Mary Rogers takes her life jacket off gives it to this female passenger gives her the space in the in the um, rescue in yeah, the, the lifeboat and and then steps back onto the ship and, and is seen last seen going down with the ship. So oh my goodness! I mean, that's just heart wrenching heroics, isn't it? I mean, such, such a yeah, sort of um, sort of very Victorian romanticised story. But uh, um, yeah, if if that's that does seem to be there's some evidence that she did stay on board ship when she when she could um, theoretically have been rescued. I mean, women and children first was uh, even by 1899 was still an accepted kind of concept. So. She's very interesting because she puts her uh, she puts her job and her professionalism and her professional role as a stewardess before, if you like, her uh, sort of gendered position in Victorian society. As a woman, she would have had every right to have claimed, uh, as, as socially and culturally, she should quite easily have claimed her seat in the boat ahead of ahead of men. Yeah, uh, plenty of men were saved. Plenty of men got in lifeboats and and was saved from the Stella. So she was ahead of her time, wasn't she? She was very much, yeah. I think she was on that cusp between women being, um, society accepting that women could be in a professional position and, uh, you know, a captain was expected to go down with the ship. The crew were expected to go down with the ship. But there's this strange sort of juxtaposition with um, Mary Rogers that on one hand she's crew, but on the other hand she's a woman. And I think if it had been 10 years earlier, she would have been put in a lifeboat and forced to, uh, to, to leave the ship. So she's a very, very interesting case. She is indeed. And there's many more stories like that to be found in Dr. Price's book. It's called Heroes of Postman's Park, Heroic Self-Sacrifice in Victorian London. 
Well, that's it for episode two. Join us next time when we'll be talking puppies, the psychology of secondary victimization, and crowdfunding sites, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Thanks to all our courageous contributors and generous guests, and to you for listening to the Stopping Scotland Scammers podcast. Produced by me, Jackie Brambles, for Broadstance Media, and brought to you by the Royal Bank of Scotland.